Welcome to another episode of the Spoon Mob Podcast. This week I am joined by Chef Sam Hart. He is the owner and founder of Counter in Charlotte, North Carolina, as well as Biblio in the forthcoming Manakee. He also has another concept kind of in the works, which we get into during the episode over the course of the podcast. But I wanted to have Sam on. He's been somebody I've been following since the last time we went to Charlotte. We weren't able to eat at Counter. Um, they were sold out. We wound up going to Bardo. Still had an amazing time and everything. Um, but Counter was a restaurant that we discovered when trying to figure out where we could eat when we had to go down there. And been kind of following along ever since. Sam's also somebody who's pretty open and honest on social media. Uh, he's posted a few times about things that have been affecting his restaurants or been plaguing the industry. So I thought it'd be awesome to have him on and just kind of chat about his career and what he's got going on and what he kind of sees in the Charlotte area and a little bit more of a wider scope too with the new Michelin guides and everything. So I really appreciate his honesty and just everything that he kind of does and legitimacy and just full force kind of into what they're doing. So it's an amazing restaurant concept. They're scaling back a little bit on how much they turn stuff over. So if you don't really know anything about Counter, and, and we get into it during the course of the interview, but they switch over their menu pretty frequently. And when they switched, they were switching over all the plateware, all the dishes, all of the wall art, like everything was all themed together. And then they would, when they changed it, everything would change. And they're going to scale back a little bit on that and kind of keep some of the plateware and stuff for longer periods of time now. But what they would do is they would either sell those things when they changed them or auction them off and raise money for different charities that they would donate. So it's a really ambitious project to do all that and take that all that on when you're switching over a menu and coming up with new dishes. You know, we talk about one of the most recent menus that they did was a vegetarian focused menu and it was like the hardest menu that you did, but it was also the least successful in terms of just customers and guests and everything and bookings and all that stuff. So we get into all that. Yeah, really looking forward to making it down the counter. And we talk about Biblio, the wine bar that they have going on in Manakee, which is going to be this kind of food stall space that they're opening up. And then that should be opening probably sometime early next year, it sounds like. Um, so we cover all that stuff. So it's an awesome conversation. And Sam's just a, a cool dude who's been around the block and is super honest and everything with everything that he's encountered in the industry and and where it needs to go and everything. So you can follow him on Instagram. His handle is at Chef Loosely. And you can also follow the restaurants at Counter CLT, at Biblio Charlotte, and then at Manaki Charlotte is the other handle. You can follow us on Instagram too as well, at Spoon Mob. Main social media account that we use feeds into the Facebook account, page, whatever. We usually put up a TikTok post just of the forthcoming episode. Usually do that like Wednesday nights. So if you're following us there, you get a little preview of who the actual guest is going to be uh, once the episode releases on Thursday. Episodes release Thursdays, 1 a.m. Eastern time. And then when we have mini update episodes, we usually release those on Tuesdays. Check out our website, spoonmom.com. Uh, all the profiles for all the different chefs and sommeliers and beverage directors and anybody that we've had on, all the guests, they all have an individual page. Contact information's there. You can also find any updates since they've been on the podcast to their career, if they've been nominated for an award, if they've opened a new concept, whatever. We keep a kind of running list uh, in their byline, essentially. Different photos, all the restaurants, places that they've worked, um, wine photos too as well. So you can find all that stuff. Photos eventually make their way to Instagram, but they always wind up on the website first. And we keep that pretty up to date. So there's always something new getting up to date 
on the website pretty much every week. And uh, make sure to follow the podcast wherever you're listening to podcasts, Apple, Spotify, Amazon Music, Audible, Google, uh, Samsung podcast. If you have a Samsung device, I think that's automatically installed when you get it. All the smaller ones too as well, Podcast Republic, Pocket Cats, all that stuff. You can find us. Just hit the little follow button or some of them might still use the subscribe button. And then when we release a new episode, it'll drop straight in your feed. And it depends like if you have auto downloads turned on or off, it might download to your device so you can listen offline. Uh, but that's in like your little settings tab there. So uh, make sure to do that. That way you get all the new episodes. You can also check out our YouTube channel. We put all the episodes there too as well. They just come out a week later on the YouTube channel. But yeah, you can subscribe to that and we throw everything up there if YouTube's your preferred platform to listen and consume podcasts. And there's still time to vote for us for best community partner for this year's Ohio Restaurant Association Industry Awards. Uh, Voting closes the last day of September on the 30th. So if you haven't voted, make sure to go ahead and vote. There's like six different categories. We're in the best community partner category. There's a drop down. There's us and three other finalists essentially for that one. So um, throw us a vote and then check out all the other categories too as well. A bunch of alumni are nominated. Nolia is up for the South Award. Cordelia is up for the North. Central, there's a bunch. There's Commune, there's Chapman's, the Refractory. Wario's, uh, I believe Joya's is up for that too as well. There's a bunch of people that we've had on the podcast that are up for different awards in those categories. So check that out if you haven't voted. There's no limit to how many times you can vote either. So you could go on there once a day if you wanted to. You could do it for you know five times in a row if you wanted to, whatever. But yeah, if you get a chance to vote, please do so. We'll post a link uh, to as well so it makes it easier for everybody. You can also find it, the link in our bio on our Instagram page. But without any further delays, here's my conversation with Chef Sam Hart, the owner and founder of Counter, Biblio, and Manakee, all in Charlotte, North Carolina. Thanks again for agreeing to come on the podcast and take some time out of your day. I know you're pretty busy. You guys always seem to have a lot of stuff going on. First, kind of learned about you and your restaurant counter. We were going to Charlotte for a family thing, looking up restaurants. We had like an extra day that we could kind of do some stuff, didn't have any obligations. Came across yours. It looked awesome. You guys were sold out, booked up, so we weren't able to attend. But it is on the list for return visit. We have some family in the Charlotte area. My wife does. So I think we'll be in that neighborhood somewhere next year too. And then I was just kind of following along on Instagram and you are somebody who I wouldn't say is outspoken. I think you're just spoken. I think when things pop into your mind, you communicate those out and however people take those is kind of how they take them. I think you've raised a lot of good points on a few very long Instagram posts that you kind of got a few ideas out there about just how things have gone with kind of service and customer interaction over the course since, you know, the pandemic and stuff. And I want to get to some of that stuff, new restaurant concepts that you got in the works too as well. But I always like to start at the beginning with everybody, kind of how they first got in the industry. So your story is a little different because you didn't get in till late. Like you were 21 living in Utah. Like that's kind of when you first started cooking, right? Yeah. So I cooked my first like full on meal for myself when I was 21. Then I got into the industry, went into culinary school about a little over seven years ago. So when I was 24. So yeah, a little bit of a late start because of that, realized that I had to really bust my ass to get to the same level that people who had started when they were like 14, 15, sometimes even earlier than that. There's a lot of early hustle. And thankfully, I still feel like that's a part of not only who I am, but how the restaurant operates too. 
So before you go to culinary school, when you first start cooking, because you're out in Utah, you wind up cooking for some either Jehovah Witnesses or Mormons that showed up at your door kind of when you were there, right? And you mentioned that it was kind of more out of necessity at that time period than really interest. But do you remember when it became interest for you? Um, It became interest for me when my grandmother passed away. I don't think she knew that I was that big into cooking, but definitely knew that I enjoyed reading and especially things that had some sort of you know, antiquity to them. So she gave me, and we actually have it at Biblio, our uh, second restaurant. It's a first pressing of the little French chef by Julia Child. And I just remember looking through that when, when I got that, when she passed away and I was like, Whoa, this is, this is really complex. This is really interesting. And then also, you know, I was watching, you know, this normal bullshit TV shows of chopped and, you know, whatever. And then, you know, I see on Netflix, a chef's table came out and I was like, oh, this is even, even more unique. And that happened right when I was going into culinary school and, and well, like right before I was going into culinary school and really developed, you know, borderline obsession with cooking and, and discovering how to create something with food. And so there's not one major moment, but just kind of a bunch of domino effects that thankfully lined up to where I decided to go into culinary school and come up with the idea of counter. So before you go to culinary school, I mean, you went to Dickinson College for like media, right? You worked in advertising. You worked, I think, for a golf manufacturer, maybe at some point. You did some stuff with a cell phone provider. Like you just have a standard kind of career path for most general white collar people, right? And I think maybe even you thought about like pursuing archaeology, I think flies in there somewhere. So when you're going through all that and, and you're in this kind of office world, was there a point, was there a, a moment where you're like, I don't want to do this anymore? I never had a moment where I didn't want to do it anymore. And I think that's what's the odd thing. Like it was really difficult to leave uh, iHeartRadio. And, you know, there I was doing ad sales. I thoroughly enjoyed the career that I had. And, you know, I've always been someone that seeks out relationships, friendships, you know, making that human connection with people. The way that I discovered that before was through those businesses. And I really enjoyed becoming friends with so many people and, and making those connections and learning about so many other different walks of life through that. Cooking also showcased an opportunity for me to not only learn about people and have connections with people in the moment, but also have connections and and learn more about people in the past as well. It was actually a difficult uh, decision, um, not just financially, which that, you know, on the service level was without a doubt the most difficult decision, but it was more of me just really having this moment of realization, like this could be my one opportunity to be good at something. And that's when I decided to jump off the bridge and go into cooking, you know? So when you decide on culinary school, you went to, I think, Central Piedmont Community College for their two-year program. Why specifically them? Just because it was local, but I think there's a couple other possible local opportunities or maybe at least one other at that time. But CIA, all that other stuff, Cordon Bleu might have been around at the time, maybe not. But why them? So I went pretty deep into a discovery of which school I should go to because I definitely wanted to go to a school and, and eventually graduate from a school because that was something that I you know, promised my mom. I had dropped out of three universities already. And I looked up best culinary schools in uh, the country, best culinary schools in the Southeast. What I was really shocked by is Central Piedmont Community College was always rated at the top or near the top. 
And then I looked at how much money it costs. I also looked at how much, you know, the student per teacher ratio. And I was really surprised by the take that CPCC had, which was, we want you cooking and hands-on as much as possible. We want to spend as little time in a lecture hall and as much time in front of a stove. With me not having any kind of restaurant experience before that or really cooking experience before that, I wanted to go to a place that I had as much hands-on opportunities as possible. The other big element of CPCC that I really like is their schedule is lined up in a great way to work outside of it too. So I was at CP, I was working a full-time job, and then I had a little part-time job on the side too. And I couldn't have done that if I went to a couple of the other schools around here or, you know, went across the country to, you know, upstate to CIA or whatever. So based on your experience with culinary school, if someone in your kitchen now, they're like, hey, like I'm serious about becoming a chef. I want to own my own restaurant one day. Do you think I should go to culinary school? Is it worth it for me to do that? What would you say? What would you recommend? I feel like I have a very different view on this than most chefs these days, um, which also kind of surprises me about it. I feel like a lot of chefs say you don't need to go to culinary school and it's worthless and you know it's a waste of time. And I feel the exact opposite about it. Not necessarily because you're going to quote unquote, learn how to be a chef there. You won't learn how to be a chef, but you will learn the foundations of cooking and have so much primary knowledge that you need to have to be successful in a large array of restaurants. Whenever you work at a restaurant, you learn their foundation, how they go about things and how they make stocks, how they break down fish, how they do all this other stuff. But when you go to another restaurant, you relearn everything there too. And sometimes it can be completely different. But if you go to culinary school, you can learn how to make pasta, make stock, make a sauce, break down a fish, break down a pig, all of this, while also knowing the nutrition behind it, knowing the health and uh, safety behind it, everything within a two-year frame, which also can set you up to work outside of it at the same time. I've got three people working with us right now that are in culinary school, and I had a very interesting conversation with someone who was staging about how I told them that I wasn't going to offer them a job because I want to make sure that they go to CIA because they got in full ride to CIA. I was like, you need to do that. And if me not offering a job will push you to do that, then I'm not going to offer you a job. Yeah, I think it's something that will definitely greatly assist the fundamentals of who someone is as a cook and give them so many possible opportunities to learn that you can't get working away and going through the grind. After culinary school, you stay in the area for a while. You bounce around to a couple different restaurants. Before you wind up going to Chicago, were you just trying to build up skills? Were you looking for something in particular at each of those places to try and learn? Or like, what was your philosophy at that point? Because obviously, you know, you complete culinary school, you're serious about it, but you're, you're trying to find something in that period that you can't find. And that kind of takes you to Chicago. You know, thankfully, I had a very single pointed vision of what I wanted to do with food since I walked into the culinary school doors. So thankfully, I had the idea and the concept of counter you on the top of my head the entire time. You know, with that, I wanted to go work at a place that made fresh pasta every single day. And so that's why I went over to Angeline's and I wanted to learn how to source from farms and work very seasonally and, and make something that was super farm to table. And that's why I went to, you know, Haymaker and my first job at Heirloom. And then I wanted to learn the progression of a degustation menu, of a tasting menu. And so that's also why the first job that I had in the kitchen was at Heirloom, because at the time, uh, Clark was doing just a tasting menu, or like a modified only tasting menu. Kind of got discouraged because so many places here, 
at the time and the majority of the places here now, there's just not that focus and, and desire to create high quality food and a high quality experience. It's very money driven and it's very, what can we do that, you know, is that, that sparkle, that glimmer in the eye of the Charlotte foodie, you know, where can they come in and take a selfie with a plate of food? That's about it. And so I got a little bit disgruntled. I got a little bit disappointed. And, you know, that's when I was like, screw it. Let's try and go after the places that are the dream places that I want to work at and the places that I can learn the absolute most from. And that's when I reached out to a couple of places. And oddly enough, the reason why I went to Chicago and worked at Alinea was more because I got a tattoo of one of their dishes and the chef saw it on Instagram, freaked out and uh, reached out to me. And I pretty much said, because I got this tattoo, does that mean I get a stage? And that's when I went up there, stage, and thankfully they offered me a job. Go to Chicago. Like you said, you work at Alinea, you do the stage. The stage winds up turning into, instead of a two-day thing, like it's like a week-long thing, right? Like you kind of just kept coming back. Within 30 minutes of being there, I said, they're going to have to pry me out of here. I'm not going to leave here willingly. And they're either going to offer me a job or kick me out of this kitchen. And I think it was like, it was over a week. And finally, you know, Chef Grant was like, is he still staging here? Like, what is, what is he doing here? And that's when... uh uh, Chef Simon at the time pulled me aside, took me to the to the office. You know, do you actually do you want a job here? I was like, hell yeah, I want a job here. And you know, the rest kind of is history at that point. But there was a moment when they were having that conversation of like, is he still doing a stage? I was convinced I was about to be kicked out of that restaurant. So I was in the mode of like assembling all of my stuff again. So when I got kicked out, I didn't have to, I didn't leave anything behind. Unfortunately, I did actually leave a paring knife behind all my stage. I was like, oh, I'll just get it when I, I come back and work. But the week before I started, because I came back to Charlotte to finish a couple of classes, but week that I started, I found out that the guy who had my paring knife had left and gone to New York and started working there. And he took my paring knife with him. It was worth that investment. So you wind up being at Alinea, I think, for about like four months. How intense is an environment like Alinea? Because it's three-star Michelin restaurant, and we'll get into the Michelin stuff because I know you have some thoughts on it, and most of which I think I agree with. It's a three mission starred restaurant, pretty much the only one in Chicago. There's been a couple others, but they've closed, or Curtis Duffy's has got a new restaurant now and, and all that stuff. But it's kind of the crown jewel of the Chicago dining scene when you get into fine dining and, and everything. How difficult is being in that environment every day for somebody, even who just has a singular mindset of, this is all I want to do? At Alinea, you have to be perfect all the time. Uh, there's not a alternative way of working there. You only do perfect all the time. And so that was definitely very difficult. And it was something that shaped me and, and really pushed me quite a bit, but also kind of exposed some things about you know that kind of cooking and that style of restaurant that I didn't want to replicate at Counter and, if anything, be the antithesis for. And... Yes, you learn a lot of skill. You learn, you know, ways to do things that don't exist in other restaurants. But there's even a certain process of how you take out trash. Like there's an exact way of how you tie a knot on the garbage bag, tuck it in, put it in there as soon as you take the original garbage bag out. Where if you do any of those steps of changing out the garbage wrong or different, you're scolded. Like, <laughs> Yeah, there's a certain way of doing every single thing there. And you either 
learn how to do that way or you're not there long. There was something beautiful though about having so many people all focus on the exact same thing with the exact same standard. And that was really beautiful. And it's something, you know, my biggest goal with counter is to create that same, that same camaraderie, but do it in a more positive and more sustainable way. But that was something where I really, when you work there, you dine there, you can see, you know, the upper limits of what you can create as an experience. You wind up kind of leaving, not voluntarily, not under you know, voluntarily either. You you basically have a moment of self-discovery is essentially in a roundabout way with everything. And I don't know how far you want to get into that stuff. Self-discovery is definitely an interesting way to put it. I mean, basically you kind of have this, you pass out, like you're sleep deprived. You kind of black out, wind up finding yourself basically in a hospital. And they're like, oh, hey, you have this, 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 and this just FYI, like, and, you know, you don't really remember like what happens, you know, you're exhausted, insomnia, all that stuff. But when that happens, where does your kind of mindset shift to? Because, you know, you're working at this prestigious restaurant, that's where you want to work. Then you find out all these other things about yourself that you didn't know, or maybe you had an inkling of, but you never really knew you got confirmation, right? What do you do with all that information? Like there's your whole life is kind of turned upside down in this moment. And you're just like, well, I don't know what to do here. Like, how do you approach that? Yes, I totally had this moment of just like this complete disassociation with myself while I was at a train station in Chicago, um, kind of blacked out and wanted to not be alive anymore. It would be the safest, nicest way to put it. Wound up in a behavioral health hospital for 10 days. And in that moment, you know, learning, okay, you've got bipolar, massive depressive disorder, insomnia, you know, all this stuff, you know, that's when you're like, oh man, you're a little, or maybe a lot fucked up. And, <laughs> you know, let's start, you know, peeling away let's start learning about things. Cause you know, when you're in one of those hospitals and this is what I'll say, you know, there's a lot of, and it hasn't helped from like a lot of like thriller and horror movies that have taken place. And, and, you know, over the past few years, but like, those hospitals are amazing. I am so incredibly thankful for those 10 days. I was actually talking about it yesterday with my partner. You know, that really didn't just set me on the right track, but I learned so much about myself and then also learn how to work with people and communicate with people that whether they, you know, they might already know or just in that moment where they're having some sort of intense situation, being able to communicate and have that connection with them when a lot of people in that moment feel like they're so alone. I got to work with a lot of uh, therapists, psychiatrists, do a lot of like group and like solo stuff. And in that learn really how to, you know, work on myself and, and have goals in the future of how to work on myself. And also it was a really foundational moment for counter, you know, how we want to create the employee experience, you know, no one really talks about the employee experience. You just talk about the guest experience and the food. That was a monumental part and something that I'm incredibly thankful for every day. But, you know, that moment was definitely a huge shock to the system. And I kind of see my life post that experience as, you know, extra time, you know, and, you know, like when you're watching a soccer match and, you know, they get to the 90th minute and you get added minutes, you know, I feel like I've been in that for, you know, the past few years. And, 
you know, the rest of my life going forward in that same way. So it's kind of like when you're playing a video game with a cheat code and you're like, oh, I can do anything I want to in this video game now because not that I'm, in, I'm not saying I'm invincible, but like I'm saying that at this point, I'm not going to stifle who I want to become and I'm not going to hold back from what we want to try and do in this community or, or be silent on how we feel about things. Because, you know, we're in that bonus time right now. We want to try and make as big of an impact as we can and the you know beautiful amount of time that we're able to have left. You know, that's something that has been a part ever since that moment. Do you think you would have still wound up in this place even if you didn't have that moment? I don't think so. I really don't think so. Um, I don't really want to imagine a scenario where that didn't take place. But I know that counter would not exist without that situation, for sure. I would probably still be... Uh, struggling through a lot of probably still unknown issues, like, well, not like at the time, unknown issues, probably making my way through, you know, Michelin star restaurants, trying to find, you know, something that, that I can create something with, but I definitely would not be where I am and counter would not have the views that it has if it wasn't for that moment. So after this, you stay in Chicago, you work at a couple places, right? Like you don't wind up going back to Illinois, but I think they reach out. They're pretty supportive of the situation just because it was not your normal behavior. Like there's nothing representative in your past about like, oh, this guy just didn't show up today. Like what's going on kind of thing. Yeah, no, they were super awesome though. Like I always love to put that on the record. Like they really were incredible with that situation. And one of the coolest things that I experienced when I went and dined at Illinois in June, you know, we sat at the kitchen table and, and we got to see everything there was so much more smiling and it just seemed like you just feel there's a different, there's a different energy in that kitchen than what I was a part of. And the food tasted better. And I think a part of it was because of that. I think they're going through a huge renaissance right now. I think Alinea is, is actually on a, on a upward trajectory, which is very rare for restaurants that have been around for that long of a period of time, especially having a decade of three Michelin stars, you know, it's usual for them to plateau or go down. And that's definitely not the case there, which is, I think, a part of the employee experience more than anything else. Yeah. And they've hit their own challenges. I mean, they, they went through expansion, then they had more expansion that didn't happen. They had some bad press during COVID with a canopy that they decided to create. And Oh, man, I know who whose idea that was. And I reached out to them. I was like, oh, that was not a good idea, bro. But, you know, hey, they're always about getting crazy. I do think too, like, and if, you know, those listening, you don't know what we're talking about, you can Google it. But I will say one thing is when they explained it, the logic that they had, you can understand it. You understand why they were doing what they're doing, but it still wasn't the best idea. But I do give them credit for everybody was on the same page of like, like, it wasn't just some person went rogue. Like it was, we're going to do this and here's the reasons we're going to do it. Well, it just wasn't the right time. It was too soon, essentially, to to do that. Or if you did it probably now, maybe, you know, but it's going to affect each person differently depending on their personal experience with COVID and all that stuff. So after Linear, you're in Chicago, you're kind of bouncing around some places, right? How does all that work? Because you're at Linear, and then most, I think, restaurants in Chicago are a little apprehensive with hiring people from Linear just because it's so different, the environment there versus probably what they're doing. So how do you kind of approach that staying in Chicago, looking for new work, new places that you want to be at too, as well? Where do you kind of go from there? 
I'm glad that you brought that up because that's definitely the case. There, you know, there's kind of a joke about how you don't put if you worked at a linear, you don't put it on your resume when you apply for another restaurant in Chicago. So I was in the uh, behavioral health hospital. Um, I was visited. So I'm personally a Buddhist, and so I was visited by my monk and then two practi- practitioners. And one of them owns a uh, children's cooking school. And she jokingly said, "You know, if you don't have anything, you know, lined up after this." You know, we would love to have you at the school. I was like, no. But then two days into me thinking about it, I was like, this might be the coolest thing ever to do. I started working at a kid's table, you know, right really like the day after I uh, left the hospital. And then, you know, thankfully also kind of during that time was connected with someone who graduated from CPCC, my culinary school. Uh, Gene Cato, and he is the chef and one of um, not just the chef of this one restaurant, but now he's you know a larger part of the Boca Group. But he's the exact chef at Momotaro. Japanese food was always kind of like this mythical, like I've got no idea how they do it, but it's really yummy, and I like to eat sushi type deal. But I had no idea about you know robotayaki. I had no idea about like all this complexity and depth and. And everything about that. So I reached out to him to see if they had a job, and um, I did a stage there. And what was really funny, you know, one of the comments that you know Gene made is, you know, Momotaro is not linear. You know, it's not going to be. We don't want that here. We don't want that to be the case. Then I walk in for my stage and I see like five Alinea aprons that people are wearing during press. And I was like, I don't think Gene knows. <laughs> like literally everyone here has worked there, which by the way, he did know. It's just they had a different mindset. Well, most of them had a different mindset at that point. And, you know, I feel like there's a lot of places, you know, especially in the Boca group, because Boca, if you didn't know, Boca restaurant is right next door to Alinea. There's a lot of people who work in the Boca group that it's almost like, you know, Alinea rehab, like they're dealing and coping with all the shit that they dealt with at Alinea while working together at this other group. Yeah, I started working at Momotaro. They thankfully offered me a job and I was working there. So I was working at Kids Table from 8 a.m. until 2 p.m. And then walking from there, which is in Wicker Park, down to West Loop to start my shift at like 2.45, 3 o'clock at Momotaro. And then my shift was done at like 1 a.m., and then it would take about an hour uh, to get back home on the train and then, you know, go to sleep at 2.30 and wake up at 7 and do the whole thing again. And that was a very growing time uh, that I didn't realize for counter because I was learning so much technique and so much about cooking at Momotaro. And then when I was at Kids Table, I was learning with how much with how to deal with guests. I didn't realize that later on, but like... Uh, teaching a three-year-old how to make cookies is very similar to dealing with some of the guests that we have now post-COVID. It was a wild ride for sure. And then when I left Momotaro, that was when I was like, okay, I think it's time to really proceed with Counter, start doing R&D, develop that. And that's when I started doing private chef work up there and really developing recipes, techniques, and that kind of thing, while also still teaching kids how to cook. And then some other shit happened. Like we were doing pop-ups here in Charlotte and then COVID happened as well as a fallout with my initial business partner. And I thought counter was done. I had, didn't think it was going to come back again. And so I was actually going to start working 
Um, you mentioned actually Curtis Duffy's new restaurant. I was actually talking a lot with the guy who was the opening pastry chef, George Kovac, about potentially working there. And and kind of as soon as you know things were lined up to do that or work in another restaurant up there, that's when we got the offer of being able to open up a spot in this kind of in a way ghost kitchen, ghost restaurant space here in Charlotte. Decided to just jump on and go for it. The rest is history. Yeah, and I think George is open in his own restaurant, I think, down in Charleston. It really sucks. Like he's hit every possible roadblock to open up a restaurant and I can't wait for it to open. He I tell people all the time, you're not gonna find someone that has more of this beautiful, like improvisational and like jazz of food while at the same time such an incredible foundation and base of technique and fundamentals like his food is like i know this sounds like a weird word to say about food but it really truly is the case like he's very ethereal with food i'm really excited when bearcat opens Um, one of our previous employees ian he actually is working along with george for that and i just can't wait for them to open up it's gonna be it's gonna be special for sure so the early days of Counter, when you started, you go from private chefing, then you go to kind of the pop-up format, right? You're figuring that out. COVID happens, kind of wipes out all the progress that you made pretty much up to that point and some other things happen. But when you're doing the pop-up before COVID happens, was that all to just try and develop dishes that you knew or thought eventually would be on you know, the menu? Like how many made it from the private chef and the pop-up days to kind of the first counter 1.0 before you guys wind up moving in a different space and all that. So oddly enough, there was only one dish that made its way from the initial pop-ups and everything into any menu at counter so far. And that was a chicken mole dish that we did, but really the pop-ups along with R and D is more to A, get our name out there, B, find an investor to open up a spot, and C, find staff. Um, I was asked by someone who was talking like they were going to be an investor, but they weren't. He said, before I give you any money, I want to make sure that A, you have a sound concept that is completely planned out. B, it is tested and people enjoy it. And C, you have the team around you to make it happen. And so I just started going after that and checking out those boxes, thinking that this guy was going to write me a borderline blank check to open up a restaurant in Charlotte. Honestly, thankfully, that didn't pan out with him because of that goal that he set. You know, we were able to find an amazing staff to open up. Um, we were able to get a decent amount of press. And because of that guest that would end up being frequent guests of counter through those pop ups and, you know, able to find the space that we opened it up in too. So. We're doing pop-ups for six months, and that was a wild time frame. When you guys officially open, it's like fall of 2020, I think. Would you have delayed the opening on your own had you not been as far along in the process, you know, with Counter? Or was it all kind of beneficial that the pandemic happened because it gave you a little bit more time to kind of fine-tune things before you did open? This is going to sound insane. COVID was... I'm not going to say it was the best thing to have in the restaurant, like, because that's not true. The pandemic did assist with things I was not expecting. So, for example, you know, no one was leasing out spaces and no one was buying new spaces in the middle of the pandemic, right? So, we were able to get a very awesome rate and a lot of assistance with the place that we were at for Counter 1.0. Also, it was before supply chain 
issues started to take place. So we were able to get a lot of our equipment in and things like that for a relatively low price. And then also a lot of people had been laid off because of the pandemic. So we had a great selection of people who were looking for work and along with that, looking for good paying work. I mean, the average line cook pay in Charlotte when we first opened was $12 an hour. And we were putting out job requisitions to a barren job market for 17 to night, like 17, $18 an hour. I actually had to switch it to a different email account at one point because we were getting so many resumes in and so many people wanted to work there. I didn't really realize this at the time, but definitely looking back, us opening in the pandemic, if we could survive that, we could survive anything. Now, when we have a situation pop up, like let's say one of our executive staff members, like we literally had our, um, we call her our matriarch, but our lead sommelier over at Biblio, she gets thrown into jury duty all of a sudden, just like out of nowhere. We're like, okay, uh, how are we going to operate with this? And everyone slightly is panicking. And I'm like, guys, this isn't easy. This is something that we could deal with. It gives you a great perspective, you know, opening up in that time and having the problems that we had when we opened up, you know, it really generated a perspective of thankfulness and, and gratitude. You know, most restaurants, I feel like don't have, especially ones where, you know, it's not a chef owner. It's just like a bunch of people who had way too much money that wanted to put their name on the door. We thankfully have a really beautiful perspective and a really beautiful connection as a group. When you get that flood of people applying, looking to work there, how do you sort through all that? You can look at resumes all day long. It doesn't tell you the complete story of a person, but there's only so much time in a day that you can talk to people too as well. And you're trying to find talent, but you need to balance that with their overall personality. How are they going to fit within the group? Is it kind of passing you know, the vibe that you want, somebody that you want to be working with day to day too? So, so how do you wind up navigating building your team during that time period? It was a lot of relying on the staff that had come together. So our original chef de cuisine, Eileen Hesse, she, a year ago, yesterday, actually, she celebrated her one-year anniversary, opened up Cold-Hearted Gelato here in Charlotte, which is absolutely fantastic. But she was a part of our last set of pop-ups in February of 2020. And, you know, before the world shut down, I continue to say, you know, this is going to happen. We are going to get this to work out. September, well... She officially was on the payroll starting, I think, in June, maybe, or May or June of 2020. But, you know, I asked her, you know, who are people that you've worked with that you trust that you know that we can build this thing around? Because Eileen knew from day one what we wanted to accomplish. She knew the, the level of food experience, everything that we wanted to accomplish. And so she reached out to a couple of people that she had worked with before that either didn't have jobs now or jobs that they didn't want to be in. And then we were kind of set with that for the first five, six months. I mean, we we operated as just four people for a long period of time. And then when it was time to hire additional people so you know we could actually sleep and uh, not work every single day and do some more unique things with the menu, you know, when we started to expand, the way that I went about it was anyone can send me one email with a resume. Not many people are going to send me an email. And then also reach out to me on Instagram or send me a follow-up email or call the restaurant. So I only followed up with people who reached out twice because that to me was like, okay, you really want to work here or people who just showed up. You know, it's kind of that I know you're a huge Bourdain fan and, and, you know, heard, you know, all these crazy stories, but you know, the people who just, you know, show up at the back door, hell yeah, go ahead and grab an apron. Let's figure out something for you to do here. If you really want to be here that bad, let's do it. 
the idea and concept for counter, you know, I think there's a lot of different kind of loose interpretations possibly floating around, but it's essentially a story driven restaurant that also runs counter to kind of the hospitality industry norms that also focuses on pairing food with music. So it's kind of like those aspects if I'm getting it all together. So it sounds like on paper, when you say that to somebody, sounds like an awesome concept, but you had like no support for this. How do you navigate that when every single person that you're talking to about this idea that you have, and it's a very flushed out idea, and they're just like, no, it's not going to work. Why are you doing that? Why are you-? you can believe in yourself as much as you want, but at some point, some doubt creeps in because it's like every single person keeps telling me this is a terrible idea. Am I missing something? What am I not seeing? Like, how do you kind of overcome that hump and just kind of keep pushing forward to eventually open the restaurant? I knew the idea um, was a cool idea when I first had it. I knew it was a sound and effective idea when I worked at Alinea because when anyone talked about their experience at Alinea, the first thing that they talk about is the final dessert. So this big plated dessert experience. So when you look at that and you're like, okay, what is in that dessert? You know, not only is it delicious food prepared in a unique way that no one has seen before and plated in that way, they also have music going on at the exact same time that goes with that dish. They're changing the lighting. They've got a fog machine. They've got all of this going around. And usually that dish has a story attached to it. So for example, right now they're doing something based on a banana split and like everything that goes along with it. So then for me, it was like, okay, how can we expand, you know, the original idea was to pair, you know, music, but then it expanded into how can we tell a story and how can we have everything working at the exact same time and fully just immerse someone into the experience that's going on. That's where the idea really doubled down on itself. It was like, we're going to have music be the expo. It's going to choreograph when we decide to put pans down, when we take something off the grill, everything is cued to that music, which also means like if you're eating super slow, yes, your next dish is going to be in front of you before you finish the last one. You know, that's just how it has to go because I'm not going to give you an overcooked, overrested piece of duck while I'm waiting for you to eat a pasta. Like that's, I want to make sure that it's there at the highest integrity. You know, I was completely and still am so utterly convinced of how beautiful of an idea this is. And it's so ingrained on who I am as a person. You know, whenever someone would doubt it, it was more of, okay, you're just adding fuel to the fire. You're adding a bigger chip that's on my shoulder. And we're going to show you what this place can do. Yeah, we had a lot of chefs, a lot of restaurateurs, a lot of critics really bash it and without even showing up. I can count on one hand how many chefs in Charlotte have come to counter. It's unfortunate because I'm originally from here. What's kind of odd is that we have so many quote unquote Charlotte chefs that represent Charlotte. And I'm not being xenophobic, but they're talking about how they are Charlotte and they're the clique of Charlotte food. They bash the team that actually has Charlotteans. Like I'm not only a Charlotteian, but we talk about Charlotte history during our dinners. Like we talk about what this place was before it being the Queen City, you know, during our meals. 
And it's just always been interesting. And, you know, definitely there's been some change to that over the past, you know, six months, uh, really since the James Beard situation. Yeah, it was a wild thing that I wasn't expecting really when we opened up to have such animosity. I think there was also some built up animosity that we were doing well when a lot of places were struggling to keep their doors open. You know, that's something that we were aware of. And that's also why I tell my staff, you need to go support locally owned restaurants on your days off. And like, before you show up, be patrons of, of making sure that we're building up Charlotte, because you can say all you want to about, you know, raising the tide and making sure that, you know, all ships are sailing smoothly. But if you're not actually going out there and supporting those other restaurants, then you're not really putting your money where your mouth is. And like, we want to make sure that we are supporting Charlotte as much as Charlotte is supporting us, which the guests here in Charlotte now, oh my gosh, the support is amazing. And we're incredibly thankful for it. Yeah. Like the only other place I can think that maybe if you were like the hometown person and you're opening, you know, this new concept restaurant and you would get just like no support from, you know, local press or anything would be like New York city, maybe because there's just so much other stuff, but Normally, like Charlotte, theory, you're almost supposed to get a pass. Like, even if your restaurant is like complete dog shit, like it's not. But I'm saying like, hypothetically, like you're still usually going to get the support of the local press because it's a hometown person. He's he's stayed here and he's bringing, you know, this concept here. And and, and for whatever reason, like that's just not Charlotte. And it's just wild because, you know, down the road is Asheville. And the whole thing with Asheville is, well, nobody here is from Asheville. Everybody is from somewhere else. Like that's. Like the theme of the city, as soon as you step foot in there, like that's the first thing that somebody's going to say to you is like, yeah, nobody here is uh, actually from here. Yeah. So when I was born, uh, there's 250,000 people in the total metropolitan area. So like, like way outside of Charlotte as well. Now there's 2.5 million. If everyone is still alive from when I was born, which obviously is not the case, then like only one tenth of the people who live here in Charlotte were here when I was born. And it's probably closer to like one in a hundred. But it's a very weird city in that sense. Like we're definitely hands down. I, I can't even think of another city that has more transplants that live here than here. But also from that, there's a, so many places that um, so many people here in Charlotte that want to see places like from where they transplanted from here in Charlotte. So you see XYZ, you know, Philly cheesesteak place, you see... New York style pizza, you see all these different places. And one thing that we hear all the time at counter is I'm so glad that there's a, like a high level tasting menu restaurant in Charlotte. Now we miss that from New York or we miss that from Chicago or what have you. And so it wasn't really like, we didn't build it here in Charlotte to fill a need, but apparently it was a need and we're glad. We're glad that we were able to do it. <laughs> Charlotte's an interesting landscape in every way, especially in food. So eventually you guys, after like two years, you moved to a different space. Was that just new? You had, was that more about lease or you just, you needed something that you guys could kind of custom build to what you wanted the entire experience to be, or was it just need more space or just different location? Like what led to kind of the move? We knew that our initial spot was temporary. So we opened up Counter 1.0 in a 1,300 square foot space that had a 750 square foot dining room. Tiny, super small. And because of that, 
we knew that one day, you know, if this thing checks out, if it goes as planned and, and it's successful, we're going to need to build a spot that showcases who we are and where we want to go and where we want to be. You know, the final iteration of Counter is not even where we are now. You know, we want to continue to develop and, and work on, like, stay in the space that we are, but develop it even more. And so um, we actually looked at three different locations before we landed on the one that we're at now. And two of them kind of fell through. Like, we were gung-ho ready to do it. And then they totally just, like, fell through due to ridiculous circumstances. But the biggest reason why we moved from Counter 1.0 to Counter 2.0 is really just to make sure that you know we could continue to grow you know it's a restaurant that we never want to plateau we wanted to continue to push forward all the time so with the new 2.0 version you guys do this thing where parts of the restaurant revolve around the menu that you're currently you know working on and serving so the plateware art on the walls the utensils all that stuff changes where did that idea come from because that's a very unique idea to do all of those things. Yeah, it just evolved over that initial idea. Like, you know, you can make food and pair it with wine. You can make food, pair it with wine, pair it with music, pair it with the art on the wall, pair it with the bouquets that we have on the plating tables and on the counter. You can make sure that you have plateware that tells the same story that you're telling through the food and is the right vessel to tell it. You can also pick the right utensil to go with that. You know, there's, there's all of these elements that, you know, we wanted to make sure that every single spot on this canvas was painted to create the exact same image. And even our uniforms will change. Everything changes to make sure that not only are we telling this story in the best possible way that we can, but also we have a guest that's been in, we have, almost two guests now, but we have one guest that's been in 50 times. And every single time that he's come in, it's been different. You know, we've done this all in, you know, three years next month. So it makes it to where everyone that works on the staff has to be thinking in a similar way and have to have the same goal in mind. But we also try and do it in a way that everyone is a part of that conversation and it's the most positive that it can be. And I love how much laughter happens in our kitchen during prep and even sometimes during service but also i love that there's been multiple times that our staff has been describing a dish and started to tear up because it's such an impactful part of who they are and so you know there is a moment you know during our here and now menu where we were showcasing only ingredients from within a three-hour drive of the restaurant but also through the artwork on the wall um, showcasing 10 different heroes in the charlotte area you know, there was a moment where I was like, okay, we're doing it. We are doing that goal that was initially set out at Alinea where everyone is focused on accomplishing the same task and being a part of this, this crazy situation together. And we're doing it in a way that still allows us to, you know, laugh together and not want to rip each other's heads off, but instead, you know, build each other up in this summer has been a very beautiful one. And I really love the trajectory of where everyone's going. It's just, it's it's really cool. One of the things I read said the counter itself also changes. Is that true? So we initially were looking at doing that and then it was too crazy. So the only things that don't change are the chairs, the physical countertop, the, and the equipment and the curtains. That's it. Everything else does. So 
But the physical counter itself, that was kind of like this crazy pipe dream from one of the ownership staff. He was like, oh, we can even flip the counter out. And I'm like, I don't think that's going to work. And uh, then we looked at the price of it and I was like, yeah, that's not going to work. So after each menu is completed, you guys either sell, recycle, or donate all the parts that do change to you know nonprofits or, or whatever you can do with the items just to kind of sustainability, but also supporting the community. Is that effort more about sustainability or is it more about supporting the community for you guys? It's a little bit of both. Um, we used to do it at the end of every single menu. Now we're going to do it on a yearly basis just so we can compile it in and only have to do it one time because it's a pretty big undertaking. But there are some things like we're like, okay, this is a very malleable dish or this is a very malleable you know, piece of artwork or whatever. This artwork tells the story of this restaurant very well. So we actually have a hallway that serves as kind of like a timeline of the restaurant. So we'll do it there. But everything else, we're like, okay, this is really just for this one menu. And we don't want it to take up space here. But we know that this could potentially create some kind of you know sense of nostalgia or connection with one of our guests. And in turn, it could raise money for one of our 501c3 partners. You know, one of the biggest elements, and this is actually where my mom really comes into play, because she told me she was like, Always remember to give back. Always remember to be a part of the community. You know, it's not just you. It's not just your team. And, um, you know, so far this year, we've donated, after all is said and done, well over $100,000 to local 501c3 partners. And we're wanting to get a good bit over that by the end of the year. And the best way to do it is to take things that would just be collecting dust at the restaurant or in our storage unit and finding it a home where it actually gets a use out of it. And then on top of that, using funds to make, you know, an impact in someone's life. You know, that's a cool little combination of everything. Have you guys ever like worked on another menu and then gone, ah, I wish we still had that plate that we donated three months ago? A hundred and ten percent. So like the best example of that is we literally had a dish called the Foothills plate. It's my favorite dish we've ever had. And the way that this dish was made um, was using harvested clay. So Matt Halliburton is a ceramicist out in like Valdez area, Rutherford College area of North Carolina. And he foraged for his own clay and then also found all the stuff to make his own glazes. So he did everything from scratch and really showcases North Carolina. Like this is North Carolina. And then he made the outside rim of the plate look like the foothills of North Carolina. And the color matched it too. And it was gorgeous. It was my favorite plate we've ever had. We decided to sell them uh, after our first menu. And I regret that decision so frequently, but we're going to have them make more of them in the future. But then at the same time, it's like, you know what? That is a piece that gets to live on. You know, we actually know whose house it's in and, and, you know, we know that they enjoy them. That's how memories are. Sometimes you wish you can have them back, but at the same time, you're like, well, I'm glad it's a memory and we're on to the next thing. How do you guys decide on who you're partnering with, with the 501C? Like, do you guys just kind of do general research or is it individual causes that are important to you and whoever else is on the staff? And you guys kind of get together and talk about like, does this make sense for us? This is an ever-flowing conversation for sure. I have two that really mean a lot to me. Um, and that's Time Out Youth and the Relatives. But then we also partner up with Charlotte Wine and Food and they have their own 501c3 partners that they do like their events and raise money for. But then if someone's like, hey, 
this is going on. Would love it if you're able to assist. You know, we'll take a look at it. And as long as it goes with, you know, what we stand for as a group, then we'll usually go with it. It does make it difficult, though, because, you know, thankfully, a lot of people are starting to see what we're doing in that route. But then at the same time, like, I get probably two or three emails a week about, you know, XYZ Foundation or charity that someone wants us to donate something to or do an event with. And I can't say yes to everything. I wish I could, but we have a lot of people reach out all the time. So we have to be pretty, unfortunately, like pretty, not nitpicky, but just making sure that we are collaborating with the 501c3s that we want to really be a part of the most and have the most connection with the impact that they're putting in. For the menu themes, because you guys change those pretty often, you know, you've done ones based off Prince, Pink Floyd, Beethoven, one that was focused on, I think, ingredients strictly from North Carolina, one that was focused on mental health. How do you come up with those ideas? Because I mean, music you can is fairly easy. It's like, oh, I'm kind of into this artist, like this makes sense, could we pair food with it? But for the other stuff, you know, how do you come up with those ideas and translate it into, you know, a tasty menu? We get asked this question probably more frequently than than any question. And the answer is, you know, the uh, the analogy that I say is like whenever you buy a new car, you see your car everywhere on the highway. And because of that, you know, for the five years that I was thinking of this restaurant, I was constantly seeking out inspiration for themes, for concepts, for dishes, for ingredients, for techniques, whatever. And I just started compiling a list in a notebook and now it's in my phone of all these potential themes and ideas and tributes and blah, blah, blah. And then, you know, we'll have conversations with people and we're like, oh, that's a cool idea. We've even had, so the first theme that was the idea of a employee actually happened this summer. And that was our James Bond tribute dinner. And going back to our initial Chef Guzzini lean, that was an idea that she had. Sean Connery passed away. And it was her favorite actor. And she was like, we should do a Sean Connery or James Bond tribute dinner. I said, you know what? We're totally going to do that one day. And um, we also put it uh, specifically on her birthday week. So she could come in for her birthday and, and you know go to this dinner that it was her idea. Because of that, the list got so long that I had to kind of like pare it down and you know really look at the ones that we wanted to do, ones that we could financially do because... You know, we have to pay royalties. You know, we we pay for the rights to have you know certain artists as our tribute dinner. You know, I'm about doing things the right way so I don't get sued. <laughs> With that, you know, I was like, this is earlier, like way early this year. I said, man, you know, we've got only 131 slots left by the end of our lease, and like, and I only want to run this restaurant for 10 years. You know, we only have 131 slots left and I've got 158 menu ideas in front of me. Let me just pick the ones that I want to do the most that I think could be the coolest. And then that way we don't have to worry about new ideas anymore. We can just like focus in on what we want to do. I mean, obviously if a cool idea pops up, we'll switch it out. But I mean, technically right now I do have a schedule in my phone of every single menu that we will do for the remaining nine years of the restaurant. And then (laughs) just get to put in, like kind of develop it from there. We've got our menu and our schedule planned out. Uh, next year that the staff already knows about. So they're working on dishes for next year and in that development. So it's a little crazy. It's a little over the top, but that's kind of who we are too. Why do you only want to do the restaurant for 10 years? 
it's kind of like when someone finds out that they only have six months to live, you know, how much more life they pack into that. So if we have a deadline on the restaurant, you know, I told them last week, actually, I said, we are 25% of the way into the life of this restaurant. And what that means is we only have 75% left. I mean, when you hit 25, we actually have quite a few 25 year olds. Exactly. I was like, when you hit 25, in a way in your mind, you're thinking, oh, I'm a quarter of the way done. And you start to have this realization of, of life. And so with the restaurant, I tell them, it's like, we're getting there. We only have so much time left. There's only, and you can only make so much progress every single day. So we need to make sure that we're making that progress every single day. So the very last night of service that we have at counter nine years from now, it's, you know, as close to perfect as possible. It's really cool for them to have that same view of it. And it kind of urges them to make progress every single day versus put things off to tomorrow. But when you hit that 10-year mark, um, do you reserve the right to potentially extend or change counter to counter 3.0? Because like, uh, I think Gagan did this. Like He had a restaurant and it blew up and he, he had like the 10-year mark and like then he was done. Then there was some other stuff with like a, a lease and everything, but he wound up opening a, a new restaurant, which is similar, but it's kind of an evolution of what he was doing. Does that kind of fit with potentially? I mean, obviously, this is seven years down the road or, or whatever, but. Counter will end. I There are other things that I want to do, but counter itself will be over. It's something that I I want to really enjoy in that decade. I do have plans of what is next. I want to start undertaking that like much later on, but the way that counter is designed and the way that it goes about service and all that stuff, that's something that is only going to happen for the next nine years. And that's it. I do reserve the right to like bring it back. Yeah. But I highly doubt that's going to happen. You've done like around 50 menus. Maybe it's been more, maybe there've been some that are shorter. 40, we've done 48 menus, 571 dishes and 20, almost 2200 different songs. Now, like I count all this shit. We actually had a like a writer come in earlier this week, uh, or last week for the Prince dinner. And he was like, dude, I just don't get how you're able to do all this stuff. And I was like, well, we're obsessed with it. And it helps to be a little bit on the spectrum. And he just started busting out laughing in the middle of the restaurant. I was like, hey, you got you to gotta sell it out is, you know. Um, but yeah, we're at 48, starting 49 next week. 48, starting 49. The one that you just finished, I think before, for the Prince menu is the here and now menu, which you kind of referenced earlier. And you said, I think through an Instagram post, it was the most challenging menu that you guys had to execute. I think it changed pretty much daily. You guys did something ridiculous, like over 50 different dishes were created just for that menu alone. Every day was a bit different. I think there was one new dish on the menu almost every day. And it was the least popular of all the menus. Why? Like, why was it not more successful? Why? Because it focused on vegetables within the Carolinas was was essentially the theme. So I don't think vegetarianism has been any more popular than it is today. It's local, which is another thing that's super popular with not just the food industry, but most industries. Why did it not gravitate with the Charlotte people for that one? There is a specific answer. Uh, the reason is that it was vegetarian. I mean, we had over... Um, at one point, it was all the way up to 20% of the reservations that we would have on the books for that week would end up, they would either cancel or ask to reschedule to a menu that had meat because they didn't want to come in for the vegetarian menu. And 
that was really disgruntling. And we also have had a lot of guests jokingly say, you know, we're glad to be back at counter. And then I was like, well, why weren't you here this summer? They're like, well, we wanted to, you know, come in when there was meat on the menu. It's just this false understanding of value because this is also the most expensive menu for us that we've ever done because we were paying $9 a pound for butter instead of $4 a pound for butter. We were paying, you know, $7 for a gallon of milk instead of three and a half. We were paying an outrageous amount for oil and even salt. We were getting salt from the Outer Banks that was outrageously more expensive. So it cost us more money. And then we had a whole lot less people showing up. I mean, we had services of just two to four people um, at times. And the restaurant, as my business partners have let me know multiple times, the restaurant lost $100,000 in uh, June and July, which is not cool. Um, and it was scary. I mean, it was really, really scary at times, but we held on like, it was also a really beautiful way for us to stand our ground because we didn't let anyone go. We continued to give, you know, increases when people got to their time for an increase. Um, we were still giving out promotions if they earned a promotion because it's not their fault that I had this crazy idea to do a vegetarian menu and that, you know, Charlotte folks weren't coming in for it. And we survived it. We made it through and you know, thankfully, Prince was a huge hit. Uh, Prince, we fed more people in those two weeks than any two week span of time ever in the history of the restaurant by a large margin. I mean, we fed 300, it's like 340 something people in two weeks. That's wild for us. So we're back to not square one, but we're kind of back to where we were financially when we got into the summer. And I told, you know, my business partners, I told the team, I was like, guys, unfortunately, you know, we're not going to do another vegetarian or vegan menu. We can always accommodate for everyone all the time. We can always accommodate, but we're not going to have one that's strictly vegetarian again, um, which kind of hurt my heart a little bit because I kind of wanted every summer to be a vegetarian menu because the things that are in the best season are vegetables in the summer. And I really want to showcase them, but um, we're just not quite there yet. Maybe one day we'll see. So the same year that you move counter to its new space, you also opened up kind of the sister restaurant, Biblio, which is a, a wine bar that's focused on pairing food with wine instead of the other way around, which is the traditional way. I'm assuming by that description, it means the wine is selected first, and then you guys try and figure out what is going to go with this flavor profile versus trying to match the flavor profile with the cuisine. Is that a fair assessment? You've got it on the nose. So I think I was reading, you know, you guys have over 500 different wines, basically like any given time. Does that inventory allow you to flow some of that over to counter, essentially giving you some extra buying power, diversification with inventory management, stuff like that? Yes. So Biblio was kind of born out of an idea of two different ideas. One, how can we monetize our wine storage at counter? Because <laughs> we're going to need so much storage for it. Might as well put some chairs in there and build something around that. And then the other part, you know, you always ask your guests on this podcast at the end, um, which, yes, I listen to your podcast. It, it always blows my mind that people get on to podcasts that they've never listened to before. I like that you ask about your favorite Anthony Bourdain moment or like a food writer or whatever. And the most iconic episode to me is when he's in Granada and he is learning tapas lifestyle and he's just walking down an alley and he buys a well, he gets a glass of wine and he just starts sending food out. He didn't pay for the food. Like that's not how it is there. You pay for the wine. They just like give you some food. And then I had this kind of moment jokingly 
while watching that episode with a friend of mine, I was like, it'd be really cool if like they purposely and precisely created food that went with that wine. And like the whole point was to showcase, you know, the things that go great with that wine. And um, that's how Biblio was born was because of an Anthony Bourdain episode. It took nine months, but now we know like who we are and the foundation of what we do. It took a long time. Now there's two ways about going dining at Biblio. You either buy a bottle of wine and do something called the blind, where it's a four-course tasting menu that is designed specifically for that bottle of wine, or you do our tasting menu, which is called the storyteller, and you learn about five different wines through five different courses. It's uh, it's definitely fun. It took a long time to figure out how we we take a very scientific approach and kind of get ourselves set up uh, for those blinds by knowing, all right, what proteins are going to go with each possible wine that we have. And then from that, what kind of cookery goes with, you know, these different appellations, different varietals, you know, then what kind of sauces, what kind of sets, what cooking method, X, Y, Z. And then we'll have a conversation when each one of these tickets comes in about, okay, we're going to start with this and we're going to garnish it with this or cook it like this. So it goes well with this part of the wine and then do that for all four dishes. And then Bob's your uncle. We've got a tasting menu. Biblio was named to wine enthusiasts, I think forward 50 restaurant list. You said you were glad that they got it. What did you mean by that? You know, a lot of these lists and awards and stuff like that comes from who's throwing the most money at a situation. And, you know, fully transparent, we've got a PR team, right? We we play the game. Everyone plays, like, everyone that you see a lot of on the national uh, base, minus a couple, play the game. Fully transparent with it. We don't play the game as hard as a lot of people, but we are, we're on the court, Right. And then Biblio gets this huge thing and Biblio was not playing the game. You know, we purposely told our PR team, like, we have no desire to push Biblio until we fully have it figured out and fully know what we're doing and and everything. So we haven't put one dime, period, into anything with Biblio. It's completely word of mouth, completely people that are coming in to counter and see Biblio or what have you. There's literally nothing that we have done. And because of that, that means that someone dined, like the way that they talked about it and also what we've heard um, post uh, them putting that out there, someone had to have just randomly dined at this restaurant. And during that time, you know, that they were, that they had to have come into the restaurant, it was while we were still figuring out how we were telling this story, right? And we were doing a lot of um, very in depth, like we would taste the wine, look at our ingredients, really do this like focus in thing, and then send out a dish. Unfortunately, we had a lot of guests that just didn't get it. They didn't understand that, okay, we're going to show you one course that goes with, you know, this element of the wine. Or like, for example, like if you get a Chateau Massar, which, you know, is a Bordeaux style wine, but, it, you know, it's made in Lebanon then we're going to make a Lebanese dish that goes with that wine because it helps tell the story. And it got too esoteric and and too heady for a lot of people. And they just didn't get it. They're like, I just want to buy a $50 bottle of Navicab so you make me a steak. Because of that, it's like, all right, whatever. We're going to keep doing what we're doing. 
and we're only going to buy. <laughs> this is actually the case. We're only going to buy Napa cabs that they're outrageously expensive, and we're going to mark them way the hell up. So yeah, you get your stake, but you know we want you to learn about this crazy weird winery that's in Oregon doing weird ass shit with Pinot Gris, and we're going to bring out caviar. Like, and because of that, whoever dined uh, with wine enthusiasts. They had to have gotten a weird ass bottle. They got it. And that's cool. And that was something that the, the staff really has been hanging their hat on because they weren't playing the game. They were just doing what we wanted to do. And to get that kind of award at that level is just really cool for them. I mean, it's just that, that made honestly getting that made me even happier than when I found out we were nominated for James Beard. I know that sounds crazy, but it truly was an awesome moment for the staff. How did you find out about the James Beard nomination? Because you're a semifinalist and later a finalist. But some people, you know, they find out, they just get random tech, you know, they get some text from people that they know and they're like, what are you talking about? I think some people might get a call from one of the organization's, you know, members sometimes. But how did you find out? I had just finished having, so our PR team had just come down to Charlotte to do an in-person visit. When they left, I decided to go back into the kitchen and just start prepping. For an hour, I had my phone in the office so I could just zero in on getting my prep done. And then I come back to my phone and as I pick it up, um, no, I'm getting a text message from a guy named Jason who does a, well, now slightly extinct food blog called Scallion Pancake. He's letting me know, like, he's just saying, congratulations. I'm like, what the hell? Congratulations. I see like a hundred text messages and over 300 emails. I'm like, what the fuck is going on? And then I see another text message from Kristen, who runs Unpretentious Palette here in Charlotte. This says, congrats on JBF. And I'm like, no fucking way. So I go to the James Beard website. I see her name on there. I call up our PR team and I was like, did y'all know what just happened? And they're driving back to where they're like, they're all from three different areas. They're driving back and they're like, no, what happened? And I told them and it was just like, it was wild. It was just a really crazy moment. But then when we found out that we were a finalist, I was in the phone call, our biweekly phone call with the PR company, Sprout House. And it was during the Instagram release of everyone like being announced that they were a finalist. Once again, the first person to let me know because she sees a PR release that was released a little too early uh, before they even publicly announce it. Kristen from Unpretentious Palette lets us know that we're finalists. And once again, absolutely freaking out. So uh, both times, semifinalists and finalists found out through Kristen Weil. Um, so yeah, I always get excited whenever I see her calling me or texting me because I'm like, oh man, what happened now? Recently, you announced that uh, you're going to be opening a third restaurant, Manaki, uh, which is going to be uh, at the food stall at the alley at Lada Arcade. Yeah, like where does that idea come from? How did that opportunity come up? Because that's normally most restaurants, they have their initial concept and they usually do a bar of some sort. I think I think most of the time it's probably because liquor, bigger profit margins on, right? So um, that seems to usually be the next concept. Then third, who knows where they go, but food stall for a third concept is as usual with you not really the norm so like what kind of led to you wanting to explore that and and open this spot maneki is very much so 
a passion project to also allow a super talented person on our staff to spread their wings and run something. It's going to be a traditional robotayaki, which when I started working at Momotaro, I really became enamored with the history and the cookery of traditional robota style cooking, which that's over, you know, robota means to cook over open fire. And it's over the traditional pinchotan charcoal in, you know, your grill or your conro. And it's very simple. You know, you are grilling one protein and then it usually has some form of salt or seasoning through either a tare or a miso or just straight up salt, what have you. And then from that point, you leave it alone. You just let the protein speak for itself and you let the charcoal do the work. And most importantly, you have a very talented chef understand the beauty of simplicity and have the food itself really be the most complex and beautiful part of it. We were sought out, you know, someone sent us an email about this space and I was like, 475 square feet, that's tiny. We would have to do takeout. I'm never wanting to do takeout. You know, we want this group to be, you know, super high level, you know, only the best, you know, like level cookery and experience. And then, you know, I really thought about it. And I was like, the best food, like my favorite food, the stuff that I'm just enamored by and it just makes my jaw drop is perfectly cooked ribatayaki. So we had just brought on onto the team Kenny uh, Kenny Doe, and he was the uh, chef de cuisine at Bardo. You uh, interviewed Mike, I think, last year. He has a love of that style of cooking as well, but it's also a way that he can show his roots of uh, being Vietnamese as well. Um, because even though they're on you know opposite sides of the equator and they have drastically different culture, drastically different flavors. There are some ingredients that cross over and the love of showcasing the natural ingredient, the fresh ingredient is something that is consistent. And so he has a beautiful connection with both of those cuisines. I'm like, okay, I can, you already know a lot about this, but I can teach you even more about this. And we're going to put an omakase counter, you know, right there, you know, in this tiny space as well. So you can get as creative and as crazy as you want to. And then, you know, we can also have people walk up, grab delicious food and take it out too, without compromising the integrity of what we're doing. And to me, you know, that's just as high level. That is just as, as unique of an experience as counter or biblio is being able to produce something like that. With such a small space, is there much of a difference in how you approach kind of getting this place ready for opening? Like, or do you have to think differently? Like, be super conscious about what goes in to this environment because space is really limited or is it still just kind of the same approach as getting something ready to open? Even if you were like doing a pop-up or something like that. It's a completely unique situation. We're taking over a um, second generation space and it's going to require very little for us financially to get it open, but it's going to take a lot for us to, get it to where we are happy with it. And it's telling the story of Rabatayaki in the correct way. So we're approaching it in a completely different manner than what we were approaching, you know, Biblio Encounter before. So yes, we have to do a little bit of a build out, but my biggest thing and the biggest investment is actually sending Kenny to Japan to learn in Hokkaido where this form of cooking started 
the proper methods and the way to do it. Yes, we're going to have pop-ups. Yes, we're going to, you know, do all the standard things of opening up a restaurant. But, you know, the ultimate element of opening up Maneki that's different than anything else is that we are taking the tradition of this so incredibly seriously to make sure that we are sending him over there to cook and learn for an extended period of time, you know, these methods before we open up the spot. Is there a timeline as to when you think it'll be open? Hopefully March. It could be before, it could be after. It really comes down to when we're excited and comfortable about bringing it out. Now, another concept that was floated out there, I don't know if you're still going ahead with it, is preface, which from what I could tell was going to be kind of similar to the catbird seat kind of one-year chef residency might not be as a tasting menu or a counter seat or anything like that, but is that still moving forward too as well? That's something you still want to do? It's something that I still want to do. Um, the space that we had, we were really excited about it, and then it kind of just got away from us. It didn't because, you know, along with showcasing that chef and having their menu on a platform that people can see it and appreciate it, we also wanted to be a place where they were mentored and taught how to run a restaurant so that when they do leave preface, then they could then open up, find investors and and have a successful restaurant specifically here in Charlotte. And so we felt like it would be a disservice if that restaurant itself of preface didn't function as a viable business. So everything that was kind of coming to fruition with that space and the undertaking and, and kind of the overhead every single month, I wasn't convinced that it was going to be viable. So that's why we had to leave where we were going to be at. But we we're still wanting to do that concept, but we're just trying to figure out what space makes the most sense for it. Earlier this year, the first time you missed a service at Counter, I think it was uh, 762 consecutive services. What did that feel like? Did you, was it like withdrawal? Like, were you checking in all the time or like? Oh, dude, it was scary as hell, man. I, um, I, I checked in a few times, but thankfully it was also during you know, an event where I couldn't get distracted too much. But the most beautiful thing is like when you leave a restaurant for a day that you've been at every single day, your biggest wonder is not if the food's going to be cooked properly, not if service is going to go well, but it's okay. This is going to showcase how much this staff cares about what they're doing and this concept and one another. And to get the feedback that I did, and to hear how they talked about how service went after the fact, it was just such a beautiful moment of like, oh man, they really, they really care. They, they care about each other. They, you know, looked after each other, had each other's back and, and made a great service. And on top of that, the most important thing is they cared about the story and they cared about what we're telling the guests through the food and through what we say. And so it's not a normal thing. I think there's been... Three, three other services since then that I have not been present for. And I'm not planning on missing a service for the remaining part of this year. Um, but it's been really unique to see even me say, okay, the next four courses, it's all y'all. I'm going to be in the Biblio kitchen helping them out. I want to see how you guys do out there. And they're like, let's do it. And then they'll knock it out. And it's just, uh, it's, it's a really beautiful thing to see. So one of the things that you wanted with Counter when you opened it was you wanted it to be a incubator, like a, a place that whatever the staff person was, they could grow there, eventually go off and do their own thing. 
whatever that was, if they're in the front of the house, back of the house, how do you balance that mission of what you want to do with also still running a restaurant so it remains successful so new staff will come in when those people leave and still want to be there? Like you can't do that if when those people leave, the restaurant like falls off a cliff and like the quality dips and all that stuff. So so how do you balance those two with like getting somebody ready to go out on their own, showing them as much as you can, but knowing like once they do, how do I bridge this knowledge, this brain drain essentially when that senior person leaves? So it comes down to everyone having the same viewpoint and priority. So our number one priority at Counter is the employee, their personal development, their experience every day. And a part of that is we have a one to three year rule. So we want you to be there for at least a year, but we really don't want you to be there beyond three years because the idea is that that forces me as the chef owner to put as much as I can into that person during that period of time. But also, you know, young one who were literally later today going to see a location to hopefully, you know, get him his brick and mortar because he's an amazing chef um, and has a great concept. And he's our CDC right now at counter. But if his number one priority every single day is to develop the staff, you know, underneath him, but also, you know, our CDP, their number one priority is to focus on everyone else around them. And everyone is focused first and foremost on developing and assisting everyone else. Then when someone does leave, the next person's ready to jump up and take that step up. And they also have the backing of everyone else as well. It's also why a very important interview question that we have with all of our prospective employees is where do you want to be? Who do you want to be? What do you want to achieve over the next you know three years? Because if someone who is just graduating culinary school says, you know, my biggest priority is just to learn as much as I can. And hopefully when I leave here, develop to the point of being a sous chef, they're like, okay, that's an attainable goal. That's something that I can get you in over the next three years. And then also we'll get people who, you know, for example, have been a sous chef at a restaurant here in Charlotte for three years, but they're like, my goal is to learn and to develop, to become a sous chef at this high level restaurant. Then at that point, I'm like, okay, maybe I can even develop you to the point where, you know, together we can work for you to become a CDC here or what have you. And, uh, it just makes it to where, you know, now that everyone at both restaurants knows what everyone's goals are and they're all working to develop one another, it it makes it to where we're actually very excited when someone gets into their 10 year because we know where they're going, we know what they're going to do, and we also know that we had a small part of that too. David Kinch, who ran Men Race, I still got a couple other restaurants. He said, and I'm paraphrasing, but basically in this interview, and he said kind of one of the biggest regrets he had looking back when the CDC would leave, they'd go start their own restaurant. And he was just like, man, I should have just like been involved in that somehow to keep whether it was opening a restaurant for them to keep them within kind of the group so they could still do their own thing. But it was a part of us or or something other than just kind of them being an alumni of the restaurant and maybe doing a guest chef dinner like once in a while. So what is the reason that more kind of chefs or, or chef owners don't kind of approach that line of thinking along the development lines of let's still keep this person within kind of our world, but let them do their own thing. Like you're kind of doing that with, you know, the new concept, the food stall and everything. And, and you're working with your CDC to get a, a property cause he's doing a pop-up and is, is getting ready to kind of open his own thing. But 
is it just strictly financial based? Like more restaurants just can't support their staff when it's time for them to go on? Or what? what is kind of the reason that more places don't do this? I think it's a combination of not being willing to give out control along with a little bit of selfishness. So um, the reason I say that is, you know, as a chef, you have the ability to control everything. You have, you know, you're the puppet master in most places. And because of that, if you don't like how something is done or how something is plated or how something tastes or what have you, you can make that immediate decision to change it. And so when you have a CDC who wants to open up their own restaurant, they want to have that same control that their executive chef or head chef or chef owner had over them. And because of that, they don't want that person to be involved because they feel like, oh, my old chef is just going to tell me everything and, and how I need to do everything. And I don't want that. You have a lot of chefs that don't want their staff to leave because you know they're focused on building up their restaurant in the best possible way that they can. Like it always, it never, never made me feel right when I would hear that a cook has been in a place for like 10 to 15 years. Like that's just stifling their ability to grow. So the way that we approach it is, you know, I've told young one point blanks and stay one. When you open up your restaurant, I want to be a part of it, but you're going to own at least 60% of it or I'm not interested in being a part of it because I never want you to wake up one single morning and feel like I'm going to tell you what to do with your restaurant. Instead, I'm going to be there as a mentor. I'm going to be there as, as auxiliary and assist you. But I never want you to feel like I'm going to tell you what you have to do as a chef. And Kenny, like we even have it outlined in you know the contracts that we're uh, putting together right now. Even though that restaurant is within our group, I am never going to tell him what to do with the omakase. That omakase is his. And it's even going to be written down that I can't tell him what to do with the omakase. Now, the other parts of the restaurant, yes, I'm going <laughs> to, you know, we're going to decide the menu on that together, but, you know, I'm going to decide aesthetics, experience, everything like that. But the omakase menu, that's his. I think he's just now like realizing that, that I'm telling the truth on that because there's so many places that have, I call it their counter moment where they realize that this isn't like a normal spot where, you know, we actually, you know, when we promise you something, we fulfill that. The hospitality industry is just filled with broken promises. To fully answer your question, you know, a lot of chefs don't want their people to leave because they want to, you know, kind of keep them for themselves. But then also a lot of chefs, when they do have another own spot, don't want their previous chef to be a part of it because they're afraid of the amount of control that that chef will eventually take, which hopefully we can get past that and, and develop more as people beyond that and not be as selfish. You offer your staff a numerous benefits above market wages bonuses four weeks paid vacation a year some of the highlights a bunch of other stuff too as well more restaurants have increased their overall benefits packages for employees since the pandemic but it still seems to be falling short we had someone on who you know when they opened their spot they wanted to do 401k and all this stuff they got like 80% of the way there but there's they were just like we can't do 401k right away like we'll have to try and implement that just financially. What do you think is holding the benefits aspect in the industry back from being closer equal to your typical nine to five office environment that you experienced? Because you seem to be really close, if not there, but most places aren't. I mean, it's definitely the expense. Our labor cost is a little bit over 40%, which is outrageously high compared to your average restaurant. Um, but it's just where we prioritize our dollar spend. Also, 
on the benefit side, it is a whole lot more expensive to get healthcare and a benefits package for a restaurant than a normal business. Cause there's so many like hazards and potential issues. Like when you go in and work at a cubicle job, you don't run the risk of, you know, slicing your hand off on a deli slicer. <laughs> so it, it makes it a little bit more difficult on the insurance side of things. For us, it's just there's the right thing to do, and then there's the easy thing to do, and we're always going to do the right thing or what we think is right. So I want to make sure that I can take vacation. That's where I go get inspired from restaurants, what have you. So if I want four weeks vacation, I've got to give four weeks vacation to my staff. If I want the company to pay for my health insurance and benefits, then I'm going to make sure that the employees are doing the same thing. So they never look at me and like, oh, well, he's able to get extra XYZ, whatever, because he owns the place. We want it to be as equitable as possible. Um, I also am very aware that it's not as financially possible for certain places, but I do believe that it's financially viable for the vast, vast majority of places because it's just about how you prior prioritize your dollar spend. You know, it should be around 60 to 65% of your earnings of your gross that goes to your labor and food costs. So if you have to edit your food costs a little bit, or if you hire two less people than what you initially want to, but that amount of money for those two people are going to benefits and time off and all that stuff for all of your other employees, well, they're going to be much more rested. They're going to be much happier and they're probably going to function together as a group greater than what any two people could add to a team. So it's just a lot of internal struggles and conversations and decisions that someone has to make, but it's definitely proved to be for us a very great element of what we do. A couple of months ago, you put out in a Instagram post, just some of the difficulties that uh, you're facing, you and the staff are facing with small number of guests uh, in a post pandemic environment, essentially highlighting this I'd probably phrase it as an entitlement behavior more so where, where people are just not very considerate of others around them. Where do you think that has come from developed? You know, is it just a post pandemic thing? Is it, was it always there and it's just now, you know, exponentially kind of seen? I wish I knew. I don't really, I don't, I used to think that it was because the pandemic, the pandemic, like rubber band effect or whatever, like, you know, people missed being out in public and they were so thankful when they got back in to a restaurant, but then like, what, whatever, like there's not really one pinpoint reason I wish there was so we could solve it, but there is in, you are right. It comes from entitlement and it's just, it's horrifyingly bad. Like we had uh, four guests in last week that were, obnoxiously loud the entire time and then we noticed that they were pretty intoxicated and you know we because of that like really went lower like very low on their pores for wine pairing but we were just like they were sober when they came in why are they like we're pouring underneath the legal maximum like there's no reason why they should be having issues like this but they were being really just outlandish with their behavior. And then when they leave, we realized that one of the wine glasses 
they had filled with tequila and they were acting like they were drinking the wine, but they were drinking tequila. We're like, what the fuck? <laughs> How is this a thing? And then we had this other guy um, the same week, actually. We actually had to kick him out of the restaurant because he was just being obnoxious and he didn't know how to flush our toilet and ended up breaking our toilet and it was just constantly flushing over and over and over again and he tried to play it off like he didn't break our toilet and we're like and then it became this whole like scene after the fact like it was just i'm like where do these people come from where do they live what kind of like work do they do where they feel like this is okay behavior and i'll be the first one to say it like it is a very specific demographic and it is only like it only happens every now and then, but it's it's terrible. But it's it is really that like forty five to sixty five super wealthy, privileged, like straight white dude, like ninety nine percent of the time. And you're just like, oh my god. Um, but yeah, it's. It's brutal sometimes. I'm always going to have my staff's back first, which is a surprise to guests at times. And I'll take my employee's word over the guest's word. Um, and, you know, it's, uh, it's led to some interesting situations. Thankfully, they're not nearly as common as they are before. And I think, honestly, that article that was posted about, you know, our review of the average, of not the average Charlie guest, but like, the one in, you know, a thousand, not, not even that, like one in a hundred Charlotte guests, people see that before they come in and they're like, okay, we can't be assholes, you know, and it's definitely helped out quite a bit. The Michelin Guide announced recently they're going to be launching guides in Atlanta, also Denver, I believe, too, as well. They're both going to have debut guides at some point, either this fall or early next year, I think. A guide costs anywhere between 500k to 1.3 million for a tourist board. It just kind of depends on the country or city. If it was announced Charlotte was going to get a guide, how would that make you feel? I'm glad that you brought up an incredibly important part of the guide that a lot of people don't realize. It costs money, and it costs a lot of money. I think the total tally uh, that Florida paid for their first few guides because they had to sign a contract. It was like thirteen million or some shit, because um, you don't pay it on a year by year basis. You pay up front for multiple years in advance, right? Uh, I'm intrigued to find out what that final number was for Atlanta and for Colorado. But first off, I don't believe after talking with the CRVA and they're not interested in just a Charlotte guide. If anything was to happen, it would be the Carolinas total, because Asheville and Charleston, you know, they've been more known for food in the past. Raleigh has had Ashley Christensen win Best Chef with James Beard before. So Charlotte's not really the focal point, but maybe there's something for the Carolinas in totality. And if that's the case, then you're looking at the price tag close to what Florida paid for it. So first, I always like to preface this by saying, mm, I don't think it's going to happen. And if it does happen, it's not going to happen anytime soon. But I could always be surprised. If it was announced that the Michelin Guide was coming into Charlotte, I honestly would be annoyed first <laughs> it's a difficult thing to have breathing over your shoulder all the time and breathing down your neck for a lot of places it stifles creativity and then and you try to just fit into that cookie cutter mold of what michelin wants and if you dine at enough michelin star restaurants like you know what the 
what the program is. You know what they look for. You know what they want. And that's just not really what I'm interested in doing. That's why I'm very happy with like the Diver Joe in Madrid. I mean, Davies Munoz does whatever the fuck he wants to. And they're still regarded in that high level. Noma finally got three stars. But and I think Michelin is getting a little bit more progressive, thankfully. But it's not the end-all be-all. But for the average guest, it is the end-all be-all. You know, I told the team as soon as the Atlanta thing was announced, I was like, if it does come to Charlotte and we don't get a star, this restaurant closes. You can't be a tasting menu restaurant without a Michelin star in a Michelin city. You close. So you kind of have to play the game a little bit. And that's not something that I have any desire to do. So it's just, uh, it's another thing that we would have to deal with, I guess, is the greatest way to explain it. I do love the fact that when a Michelin guy gets to a city, that it creates a huge, huge amount of money that gets put into and invested into restaurants. More things happen to a city post getting a guide than before. Um, so when a place gets a Michelin guide, it's more because they're investing into the future rather than showcasing what they currently have. And you've already seen it with Florida, especially in Miami and Tampa. So would it be great to have a Michelin guide here in the Carolinas to assist in more investing of unique cuisines and concepts in Charlotte? Hell yeah. Am I excited about it as a chef operator? Not really. Yeah. I mean, I personally think that I don't think a guide should exist for a city if there's not one three-star restaurant there. I think it just dilutes the whole thing. And, and I, But I also don't think anybody who's running the Michelin Guide cares if it dilutes the prestige of it because they're getting paid so much upfront that it's just, how do we make more money, unfortunately? But it's also weird because it's like, well, what really is the difference between like, you know, this great restaurant in the middle of nowhere, Wyoming versus something in San Francisco? What if they're the same thing? It's just a different location. One has a guide, one doesn't. Does that make the one better than the other? No. I mean, it's all subjective and, and all that stuff. But you've been in Charlotte for, you know, almost all your life. How has the food restaurant industry kind of changed what do you think still needs to change for it to continue to grow and evolve so random thing about me is i've kind of turned into this weird ass like charlotte historian because i've just been surprised by how little people know about this city but like in the 70s and 80s getting into the real early 90s but mainly in the 80s there was this first movement of fine dining in charlotte you had places like the silver credit uh silver cricket cafe flavors like all this stuff that was doing like French style high level uh, at the time, like high level 80s Nouveau cuisine, right? And then the 90s hit and franchises destroyed the Charlotte food landscape. You know, you had the Bank of America building get built, Uptown started getting developed, Panthers moved in, Hornets moved in, Ballantyne, which is a suburb south of here, started to develop a lot, a lot of corporate things, a lot of banks. And then the people who were able to take advantage of it were the Outbacks, the Applebee's, the Carabas, Capitol Grill, Ruth's Chris, stuff like that. So it not permanently, but for a very long period of time, damaged the food landscape when it came to unique food here in Charlotte. So when I got into food, there was really only a handful of restaurants that were doing something unique and something cool with food. Um, you know, you had... The Kindreds just opened up their spot. You know, Bardo was about to open. And then uh, Heirloom with Clark Barlow. You know, the Vericas were up to some cool stuff. You know, there's there's all of this going on 
but it was very like barely below the surface and you could it hadn't quite busted out of the scene and what is very unique is that what really made the charlotte scene explode was right before the pandemic and during the pandemic we had greg collier open up lee and louise you had Yunta open up custom shop changed ownership to andres who's killing it you know you have uh, Sam Domenich, who through the pandemic was given an opportunity to start doing in-home meals that then led to Restaurant Constance. You had Vinny open up Idlewild and Fairweather, um, which are two great cocktail spots. You know, Larry and Andy over at Humbug. You know, all of this stuff is very recent. And it's because they took advantage of a time period that they could swing. And if they miss, they miss. But if they hit, they hit a home run. And thankfully, there's been more swing and hits than anything else. Um, so kind of what I'm getting at is we are within the first true beautiful food movement in Charlotte's history that I think is going to stick. And I think it's going to continue to grow and develop. And we're only going to get even bigger than where we're at now. We're at 2.5 million people. We're projected to be at 5 million by the end of the 2020s. So there's more room for more restaurants to open. It's not something where, you know, a landscape like Chicago, Chicago kind of staying where it's at population wise. Um, so if a great restaurant opens, that means probably a great restaurant's going to close. And I'm really ex excited knowing that the Charlotte Diner now is more intrigued by unique experiences and different cuisines outside of what we've been eating in the past. So it's a bright future ahead, I think. Just not one that's vegetarian. Not one that's vegetarian yet. I think that'll change too. <laughs> What's next for you professionally? Obviously, counters in full swing, new menu coming up, Biblio's open, you're working on uh, Manakee Boat. Anything else on the horizon? Things that I can actually say that aren't under NDA is not much. <laughs> we have a view of we're either growing or dying. And uh, that doesn't necessarily mean more individual locations, but it just means, and you know, also general like counter, we want it to continue to grow and progress. The same thing with Biblio, eventually with Maneki. And yeah, there's maybe one or two other things that we want to open up, but there's so much beauty to be said about refinement and polishing than just opening up a bunch of places, just to open up a bunch of places. But honestly, my biggest focus right now is getting young one, a restaurant. Um, and developing him into being the amazing restaurant owner operator that I know he's going to be. Um, so that's, that's probably number one right now. So this next question comes from previous guest on the podcast, wine director, Jared Krause over at Agni here in Columbus, Ohio. Left behind a question for you. If you weren't in your current industry, what would you be doing? I would be back in advertising and, and radio, man. That was a lot of fun. I got to go to a shit ton of concerts. I would still be in radio. Maybe winemaking is the other one. Sorry. There you go. What's the question you want to leave behind for the next guest? Who do you want to be in five years? And what would they think of you now? Next question comes from one of our listeners. They wrote in, if you didn't open your restaurant in its current city, where else would you have? Very interesting question. We had the funding to open up in Singapore of all places. It would either be there or it would be in like Sonoma County area in California. Where in Singapore? What neighborhood? Because I'm familiar with Singapore. So this is so long. This is kind of like he, 
And when he told me, I thought it was like this bullshit pipe dream, but he was one of my super wealthy, like private dinner people that I used to work with a lot in Chicago. It's wherever near where the two buildings that combine together near the top. It's probably like the Marina Bay area. Yeah, it's that sounds right. I wouldn't even if you told me the right thing, I don't think I'd be able to tell you. But he was building a new like 20 something story building and he wanted to have he wanted to have an American restaurant, an American fine dining restaurant that was a part of the top floor, which that building just ended up turning into a I think it turned into a hotel or an office building instead. I don't know. So a handful more questions for you. We ask these to everybody who comes on the podcast. So nice compare and contrast for the listeners across the episodes. Who would you say is the biggest influence on your career thus far, looking back on it? The biggest influence on my career would be Chef Rob Marilla. He was my mentor at CPCC. He's someone who saw what I wanted to do with food, and he was constantly pushing for me to progress towards that. What's one kitchen item that's not a knife that you can't live without? I saw, well, I've heard this question, and I, I got so excited about answering this. It's a scale. Hands down a scale. You can't do any baking, no bread making, no pasta. Like there you gotta have a scale, man. You gotta know what you're doing on on ratios and ingredients. Restaurant you'd recommend that isn't your own. So scenario I give is person gets stuck at the airport, trapped overnight, you guys are closed, they reach out to you, hey, where should we go eat? You point them in this direction. Go eat dinner at custom shop, get ice cream afterwards at cold hearted gelato, and then get a drink at humbug. Bucket list travel destination, bucket list restaurant, place you have not visited yet you still want to travel to, and then also a restaurant you have not dined at but you still want to get to one day. I definitely want to travel to all the regions of Sichuan, China, specifically Shendu. And then uh, bucket list restaurant number one on my list right now is Diver Joe in Madrid with Davies Minos. Craziest thing you've seen happen in a restaurant while you're working? Craziest thing that I've ever seen in a restaurant while I was working was during my stage at Schwa in Chicago, where I was in the middle of plating up a bunch of stuff that tasted like an Arnold Palmer's 32 different ingredients, like on a piece of turf. Then you had to take dry shots that tasted like um, an Arnold Palmer. And then all of a sudden, this dude who owns a weed shop around the corner came back with a massive pre-rolled blunt and gummies. And then all of a sudden, we're all just like having the time of our life. Did you overlap at all with Michael Knoll, who worked there? No. So he was there much earlier than me. Um, I just staged there for a little bit of time. Uh, Norm Doe, uh, who ended up opening up Brass Heart, um, which was a really fantastic restaurant. And I never understood why it never got a star. And it unfortunately boarded up earlier this year. But he owns Wild Saloon down in Mexico. He was uh, like he was a CDC there when I was staging. No, he was there like a good four years before I, I uh, staged there. Food or drink guilty pleasure. Is there anything, fast food, candy, whatever that you know is pretty unhealthy for you, but you just can't help yourself? So thankfully, this is going to go on the air after I get this. So my mom can't get mad at me now. But I have a really huge love of Hennessy. I'm actually getting a part of the Hennessy logo tattooed on my face tomorrow. But Hennessy, especially Hennessy and Bojangles Sweet Tea, 50-50, greatest mixed drink of all time. What is one cookbook everyone should own? So a lot of your guests have said a lot of really great books, like from the French Laundry book to Letters to a Young Chef and, and so many great books. One that made a profound impact on me, and it's a really beautifully written book. And I had the great pleasure of meeting the person who compiled it 
as well as one of my friends has a recipe in it is the black food cookbook by Bryant Terry. Everyone, even if you don't cook, everyone needs to read that book because there's so many essays, poems, songs, everything in there that truly showcase a beautiful part of not just food, but of history that people need to read. Um, so definitely the black food book by Brian Terry. Favorite dish thing you ever cooked, created, kind of looking back on your career, you can almost point to this as like your aha moment. Like you knew you could be a professional chef one day. So it's not really a like professional chef moment, but delicious damn thing that I ever put together and we ended up having on the menu a couple times is we call it crab rice cereal. And it came from something that a couple of our cooks um, at Momotaro used to just throw together near the end of service. But we would take the leftover sushi rice, some of the additional king crab that was just sitting around, mayo, spicy, like crunchy garlic oil and scallions and just a bunch of crispy shit, like crispy shallot, crispy onion, and just throw it all into one bowl and eat it. And it's the best thing ever. We put it on the menu a couple of times, but that's definitely my favorite. And then last question, you kind of already answered this, but uh, I'm an Anthony Bourdain fan. Uh, not everybody is or was. If you were, moment episode scene that stands out to you. If you weren't, was there anybody else who was on TV that uh, you kind of gravitated towards? Emerald, Jacques Pepin, Yen Ken Cook, anything? Moment for me was watching the Grant Ackett's uh, Chef's Table episode. And it was right after watching that that I got the tattoo of the balloon on my arm, which led to me getting my stage and subsequent job at Alenia. So that moment specifically is definitely a big one for me. Where can people find you? Social media, website? reservations plug everything uh chef loosely is my instagram we also have counter clt and biblio charlotte as our instagram handles for the restaurants that are currently open and then maneki charlotte is the one for the new spot but definitely instagram is the way to go you can see me spouting off on everything there counters open six to ten tuesday through saturday reservations are on talk and then Biblio is open like 5 to 11, like Tuesday through Saturday. And then you guys are open, I think, on Sunday, right? Like, Well, we're not open on Sunday anymore. We cut out brunch. But we have two services every day at Counter, 545 and 815. Everyone sits at the same time. Uh, Biblio, it's at 5 to 10, 5 to 11. And then Maneki is going to be open up Thursday, Friday, Saturday from 5 p.m. till 2 a.m. And then occasionally other days if we feel like it. This is a lot of fun. We were trying to get in the counter, but you guys were sold out. But uh, like I said, we'll be back in the area. We're definitely looking forward to stopping in and checking, uh, not just counter out and whatever menu you guys have going on at that point, but also the other spots too as well uh, when we can make it down there soon. So, but yeah, I really appreciate you coming on and, and taking some time out of your day. And if you need anything from us, make sure to reach out, let us know. We always try and support everybody as much as we can with uh, whatever you guys got going on and don't hesitate to stay in touch, but otherwise we'll be seeing you soon next time we're in Charlotte. Sounds good. Thank you so much. It was awesome. Big thanks again to Sam for coming on the podcast, taking some time out of his schedule to jump on and chat about his career, the restaurants, kind of the future of everything too, as well. You can follow him on Instagram. It's at chef loosely. You can also follow the restaurants at Counter CLT, at Biblio Charlotte, and then at Manakee Charlotte is the next concept that'll be opening soon. Also a shout out to Gabrielle and Camille who helped schedule this podcast and coordinate the scheduling and everything. 
for the press agency. Uh, Sprout House is where they work and their press agents agency for Sam and all his concepts. So super awesome to connect with them too as well. And they were super helpful in the process. So wanted to make sure we highlighted them and uh, their involvement with uh, getting this episode done and released to you guys. So make sure to check us out on Instagram too as well at Spoon Mob. Check out the website if you haven't or if you haven't been there in a while, SpoonMob.com. Follow, subscribe to the podcast, whatever platform that you use to consume podcasts. And then make sure to vote for us for this year's 2023 Ohio Restaurant Association Industry Awards. We're up for the Best Community Partner Award. Voting runs through the end of September. They announce the winners of the categories sometime thereafter. So that is it for this week's episode. Stay tuned for more new guests, new episodes coming out too as well. Uh, we got a few recorded, a bunch of stuff scheduled. So super excited to get into conversations with all those people. And uh, appreciate everybody who's been listening. If you continue to help spread the word. Um, you know, you wind up at any of these establishments, make sure to mention that you heard their episode on the Spoon Mob podcast. Always kind of helps reinforce that uh, coming on the podcast is worth their time and uh, is reaching the people that they want to reach too as well. People that are interested in trying out if they haven't, you know, what they're doing or if they have tried, you know, coming back and being return customers, return guests. So that's kind of what, you know, we aim for. We want everybody to discover these places that we feature and have on and people from because, you know, these are the best places in the industry that we feel are doing something unique um, and bringing, you know, great quality and kind of a great environment, atmosphere and delicious food, or delicious wine or fantastic ingredients and bringing all that stuff to the restaurant industry as a whole in the hospitality industry. So um, make sure to follow them whenever you get a chance to visit some of these places. Make sure to do so uh, whenever you're traveling or whatever too as well so for people you know listening if you're new welcome hope you guys have enjoyed uh, if you're relatively new what we've been doing uh, if you've been here for a while thank you for your continued support continue to help share spread the word all that stuff on social media and word of mouth and all that stuff thank you as always and we will talk to you guys next week on thursday